You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's conversation. My name is Daniel Urekholt, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. It is my great honor and pleasure to introduce to you tonight's guest of honor, esteemed historian, professor, columnist, and author Ian Baruma. Having lived, worked, and held highly respected positions in several countries and across three continents, Baruma has unique insight into both Eastern and Western culture. Baruma is the author of more than 20 books on a broad range of topics, such as film and filmmaking, Chinese history, World War II and its aftermaths, religion, Anglo-American relations, Japanese history and culture, art history, and Tokyo, among many more. Baruma joins us tonight to talk about his new book, The Collaborators, now out in Norwegian in Christian Rugstad's translation. The Collaborators is a triple biography, as it tells the stories of three absolutely fascinating people and the work they did as interlopers during times of immense conflict. All three individuals did what are conventionally seen as unforgivable acts against their country and countrymen, yet they all became the subjects of historical revisionism and mythologizing after the fact, at times being lauded as heroes. How can such traditional villains come to be regarded as heroes? Baruma weaves these stories with great care, sympathetic to their frail and complex natures as complicated people. He presents them with nuance, yet without cop-outs or hedging his bets, and he analyzes their afterlives, how they were and are today remembered, with inquisitiveness and rigor. In a time of alternative facts, false narratives, and former world leaders on trial, the collaborators works both as a historical analysis and as a parallel to our own time, when largely agreed-upon narratives are being thrown out in favor of individual beliefs and subscriptions to conspiracy theories. The Collaborators is a fascinating look into how history is written and a disturbing glimpse into the darkest corners of humanity. And to talk with Baruma this evening, we have renowned journalist and author Marta Michelet. She has herself delved into and questioned the hero narratives of World War II, most prominently with her book, Var bis de Jemefronten, or What Did the Home Front Know from 2018, which was published in a new and revised edition last year. So please welcome to the stage Ian Beruma and Marta Michelet. Thank you all for coming on a lovely sunny evening. I'm not sure I would have done this myself. <laughs> You're very popular, Ian. Well, I'm okay. impressed. So first of all, uh, tell us about these three collaborators that you have written about. Who were they? And why did you choose to write about them? Well, those are two difficult questions. Um, the th- the three people that I chose to write about have, seemed to have very little in common. One was a Manchu princess who um, was born really at the time that the Qing dynasty in China, which was a Manchu dynasty, uh, fell um, in the Republican Revolution in 1911. And she was um, given by her Manchu father to a, a Japanese ultra-nationalist to um, raise her. 
And um, so she was raised in a weird atmosphere of ultra-nationalism. And some Manchus, including her father, thought that by collaborating with the Japanese, they could restore the Qing dynasty in power in, in, in China. Um, her, her, her stepfather, who must have been a rather nasty piece of work, possibly <laughs> raped her. She decided when she was a teenager she was going to dress as a boy or a man. Um, and many legends accrued to her during the, in the 30s and the 1940s that she had a private army, that and she, of course, wore a male army uniform fighting on the side of the Japanese to liberate China and Asia from Western uh, colonial empires and so on, and um, had many affairs with uh, Japanese officers. And after the war, uh, she was arrested by the Chinese as a traitor, as a Chinese traitor. And uh, the, what was remarkable about the trial is that they used her legend, which had been built up with her cooperation during the war in sort of fictional um, biographies of her life and uh, where it was even a movie and so on, M most of it made up, that these stories were used as evidence against her and so she was executed. Um, the second person uh, was an equally colorful, perhaps even more sinister figure, called Friedrich Weinreb, who was born in what is now Lviv, then Lvov, um, in a assimilated German-speaking Jewish family. They escaped from the pogroms, uh, Russian pogroms, in uh, the beginning of World War I, and were became immigrants in Holland, and where he, to rebel against his parents, became a Hasidic Jew, just to annoy them. Um, <laughs> but he was always somebody who thought he was cleverer than everybody else, that everybody in the world was stupid, and which has a lot of bear bearing on the story, because during the war, when the Nazis occupied the Netherlands, um, he, uh, Weinreb, decided he was going to be a resistor. And his form of resistance was that he had a list of, uh, uh, that was backed by a German general called von Schumann in the Wehrmacht. And um, in, in exchange for money, people could be on his list and he would make sure they would go to, say, Jews, that is, that they would be safe from Nazi persecution and deportation and murder uh, by getting on trains to Portugal and Spain and Switzerland. Now, unfortunately, the lists were completely a fantasy, were made up, and so was General von Schumann, who never existed. And he was at one point arrested by the Gestapo and presumably collaborated with the Gestapo and um, uh, probably um, uh, betrayed certain Jews, partly to protect himself, but the, this but this peculiar kind of game of make-believe continued because the Gestapo wouldn't believe that General von Schumann didn't exist. Mm. They thought the Wehrmacht and the SS are, uh, are often on opposite sides. The, this must be um, a Wehrmacht general who's trying to make money out of the persecution of Jews. And there's nothing against making money out of that, but that should not be Wehrmacht, a freelance enterprise by a Wehrmacht uh, general that should be in the hands of of the SS itself. Um, uh, at the end of the war, the game was up, and Weinreb had to go underground and hide. 
for a short while. Then after the end of the war, he was arrested as a fraudster. He was um, denounced by Jewish victims who knew that he'd, he'd, he'd um, defrauded people. Um, and uh, he was in prison for a few years. Now, we can talk about this mm -hmm. later, but the odd thing about his post-war career, not only he, did he become a, a, a guru in um, teaching uh, mostly rather wealthy, middle-aged, Gentile women about the meaning of life uh, as a Kabbalist, um, but, um, or at least his version of the, of the Kabbalah, but um, he became a kind of cultural hero in the 60s and 70s to the um, youth rebellions, to the, the sort of left-wing student movement and so on, who saw in him uh, an example of passive resistance against the establishment. Um, so that's Weinreb. Um, and finally, uh, there was Himmler's Messer, <laughs> uh, Felix Kersten, known by, uh, by Himmler as uh, his, his magic Buddha, because he was a bit very big man. Kersten was born in Estonia, of German, uh, German, ethnically German family. Um, and in, by the way, in, in all these three cases, uh, we don't really know what's true, because they were what Germans call Hochstapler. They made up most of the facts about themselves. And so it's all very dodgy. But in, in any case, the claims of Kersten are that he uh, fought in World War I on the side of the Germans, then was a student in Germany um, and was in Berlin during the Weimar period uh, when there was a lot of room for all kinds of cranks and quacks and wellness people and yoga and so on and so forth. And he supposedly was taught by a Tibetan master. The fact that he claims he was Tibetan is already should make one feel a little suspicious because in, in, in comic books and so on of... Um, of, of um, Tinted uh, kind of thing. Yes, of sort of oriental wizards. They tend to be uh, Tibetan. Mm -hmm. In any case, uh, he claimed that this Tibetan, Dr. Ko, uh, whose name I haven't been able to trace in any telephone book of the time, <laughs> taught him to the, the secrets of Chinese uh, massage. And he became a successful masseur to industrialists and businessmen and aristocrats, including uh, the husband of the Dutch queen at the time. And Himmler, who, like a lot of people uh, in despotic courts, had terrible stomach cramps. <laughs> and um, Kersten, with his magic hands, was the only one who was able to relieve Himmler's pain. So he became Himmler's private masseur and made Himmler's life more comfortable during the war as he was murdering millions of people. Now, after the war, uh, Kersten, who was by then safely in Stockholm, by the time he saw that the Germans were going to lose the war, he quickly, quickly decided what well, Germany was not the place to linger. So he went to Stockholm, um, where he was involved in negotiating the release of some prisoners from concentration camps at the last minute. And um, he needed to burnish his reputation because he wanted to continue being the master of, of rich and well-connected people in Europe. And having been Himmler's master was not the best calling card. So he then had to make up, and there was a big row with, with Volker Bernadotte and so on. We, we can get into all that too. Mm -hmm. But he made up this um, uh, notion that he'd been a great resistance hero and that all through the war he'd, um, in exchange for relieving Himmler's pain, got Himmler to release people from camps, to 
stop the entire Dutch population from being deported to Poland, from starving all the French to death, uh, and so on. Mm. All of it, or much of it, probably made, made up after the war, but many people believed it, including the great British historian Hugh Trevor Roper, who was the great expert in fraud and fraudsters and, and so on, but twice uh, fell into this trap. We'll, uh, we'll get back to him. We'll get back, mm. back to him too. So mm. we'll, we'll end it at that, <laughs> and then um, we'll go on to the next. Let's, let's pick up on Kirsten a little bit, because I'm sure that many people here don't know that Heinrich Himmler also had an astrologer. Uh, well, and so did Himmler, so did Hitler, and so on. I mean, these courts, there were rivalries uh, in these courts uh, between the astrologers, the doctors, uh, the masseurs, and so on. All of them people in very close proximity to these people with huge power, mm. which was a, a double-edged thing because it meant that those people were dependent on them and often like, you know, rich women who used to confide in their, their hairdressers and so on, were often confidants. Mm. The, and at the same time, they were, of course, themselves very vulnerable because if something went badly wrong with these powerful figures, their heads could be chopped off. So there was a lot of rivalry, uh, yes, in, the, in these courts. But can you d uh, say a little bit more about the ideological component? Because... There, it's seemingly at odds, uh, Nazism and the sort of New Age, astrology, massage, uh, Eastern, Oriental, la, la, la. Yeah, not really. I, I mean, mean the, the would way... Himmler have been uh, quite at home in the anti-vaccine movement? Probably. Yeah? Yeah, the anti-vaccine movement would have fitted perfectly in... in Explain in, that, in why that is. In, ...in Third Reich thinking. Well, I mean, there were, there, there were a lot of continuities of the more than one would think, between the Weimar period and the Nazi period. And the Weimar period, of course, was, was a time of great uncertainty, upheaval, chaos, and so on. And in and those times of crisis, people often seek for uh, answers to problems that frighten them um, in all kinds of occult ways. Mm. And um, Weimar Berlin was full of that, and there, were, there, were, there was an Aryan yoga movement which was very attractive to Nazis. Um, and there still is one. There could were, was all argue kinds of yeah, in weird parts of kind California. Of, uh, exactly, and all kinds of weird Oriental stuff. And um, uh, Himmler himself uh, had all kinds of strange ideas. I mean, he was a keen student of Hinduism, and had the uh, Bhagavad Gita in his pocket usually and um, uh, so uh, that kind of um, mysticism uh, was part of, of Weimar and it was very much part of some Nazis. Now many other Nazis thought Himmler was a crank. Mm. I mean he uh, um, took this a little bit perhaps too seriously for the more cynical members of the Nazi regime but it, 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 it didn't come out of nothing. Mm. And, and he, was, he was a very sort of sentimental man in some ways, Himmler, where he would feel like his, his heartstrings for the Germanic race were being moved. And he, when he was in Norway, he heard an ancient Norwegian instrument called the Langelike, which caused him to, to break down in tears, according to many contemporary Yes, yeah, uh, sentimental witnesses. is perhaps not the first word that would come to my mind when I think of Himmler, but... The sentimentality. I'm, I'm talking on a sort of psychological well, Sentimentality level. is mm. often the flip side of, of, of unfeelingness. Mm. I mean, it's displaced emotion. Mm. Um, 
I do describe a scene um, uh, when Kerstin himself was there and Himmler and other Nazi uh, leaders were invited for a weekend of hunting mm. at the Schloss that had been given to von Ribbentrop by Hitler. And um, uh, Himmler got, was very sentimental about animals. And um, Kerstin, who did like shooting birds and things, and Himmler said, how can you do that, these innocent creatures? And you're shooting them. They don't deserve to die. So Himmler did have a... Yes, you're right, he, he could be sentimental in, in, in certain peculiar areas. While he was uh, very busy orchestrating a mass murder. Yes, he, mm. he, he was extremely busy uh, as a mass murderer. That took a great toll on his nerves and his, and his health. And so uh, Kerstin was, was, was often called um, to help him. And by the way, the stomach cramps um, are interesting because one of the best books written by, about a despotic court is by Mao Zedong's doctor, mm -hmm. Li Zhe. And he wrote a, a, a memoir of this, and he, he said... Mao himself and many people around Mao uh, in, in, in Beijing suffered from, from uh, insomnia, from chronic headaches, from stomach cramps and so on. And he called it the communist disease, which is, of course, wrong. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the totally or, or the dictator's disease, mm -hmm. because if you're constantly frightened that somebody's going to stab you in the back, you develop quickly uh, all kinds of psychosomatic symptoms. Yeah. You, you, you describe the, the inner circle of the Nazi uh, regime in, in sort of the end days as a cesspool of paranoia and dirty rivalry and basically a bunch of men that were looking for something magic to occur, um, for mag some kind of magic out of the war that would make them win it, uh, a new magic super weapon that would annihilate all their enemies at once. They were sort of realizing that the end was coming, but they were still delusional, and they were hoping for magic and also craving these magic hands from this Kirsten. Well, at the end it's, of the it's, war... It's quite a scene. Well, at the end of the war, the way things were going, only magic would have saved the Germans. Mm -hmm. But... Um, uh, yes, it is true that there was still people believed anything that could possibly change the situation. So the, this magic weapon, uh, which turned out to be the V1 and the V2 rockets, was supposed to have um, uh, helped them. I mean, you, you hear similar stories coming out of Russia now, that they think mm. that the, they have this missile that somehow will um, win them the war in Ukraine. But um, what Himmler was hoping was not so much magic. He had this notion that he could make a deal with the Allies, mm. and they would make him the head of Germany, and together with the Allies, they would fight the Bolsheviks and, and, the, and the, the, the Russians. And, and uh, one of the it, key people to sort of try to negotiate this separate settlement was the masseuse. Well, so the masseuse... Claims. Or the masseur claims, mm. but uh, what Himmler Himmler was unlike Hitler, who, who was more principled in this matter. Himmler was prepared to uh, principled. I, I, I mean that slightly ironically, of course. But Himmler was prepared to release some Jews in exchange for a deal with the Allies, in exchange for being able to meet Eisenhower or Churchill and make a deal, which of course was delusional. And um, Sweden which at the time also needed to do some fast footwork to um, 
look a little better after the war than they might have done because they had collaborated in many ways with, with Nazi Germany, um, was quite prepared to engage in these negotiations and see if a deal could be made with Himmler to release. This was all in 44 and 45. Uh, people from the camps in exchange for some kind of deal. And Volker Bernadotte, who was later assassinated in, in Jerusalem by uh, um, the Irgun, um, played a big role in this, but so did Kersten. I mean, mm. But how big is not quite clear. But Kersten was in Stockholm. He, could be, he was a mediator between Himmler uh, and the Swedes uh, and the World Jewish Congress to see if some people could still be released in a last-minute deal. And some people indeed were released. And should I tell the story of the meeting of Himmler and the... Shortly. But uh, in, um, a person that I know a lot about that uh, occurs as, as one of the, uh, the people that Kirsten saved uh, is a Norwegian uh, case. It was uh, Theodor Stelzer, who was uh, head of the Wehrmacht sort of uh, uh, logistics stab here in Oslo. And he tried uh, to warn the Jews in Oslo of oncoming deportation. He was part of the Kreisauer Quince right. in, in uh, Germany, a part of the military political opposition. Yes. And he was released on, through the massage influence uh -huh. of of uh, Kirsten in the final days well, of Well, many May of the people 45. who were released were, of course, Scandinavians. Exactly. Uh, he wasn't Scandinavian. He was German. Uh -huh. And he, he went on to form uh, the German uh, Christian uh, as a CDU right. after the war. Right. So he was someone that, that prominent people in what was going to be post-war Germany wanted to keep alive. Yes. So that channel was open also with Norwegians involved. Yes. Um, and, and, I mean, in your description, everyone is there. The, 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 the precursor to the CIA are, are busy trying to uh, sort of recruit Kirsten Felix, no? No, uh, I don't think you so. Don't th you, th no. you think they thought him too untrustworthy? No, the, the CIA was called the SS, OSS. Thing. At that time. And I, d I mm. don't think that the Americans or the British ever engaged in direct negotiations with Himmler on anything. The, the, these were all initiatives uh, that came from Stockholm mm. and um, because the, the Swedes wanted to um, basically get on better with the Allies mm. and, and seem after the war as though they'd been on the right side. Um, and, uh, and the World Jewish Congress. And they tried to um, save people at the last minute, as many people as they could. Now tell that story. Well, yeah. so Kirsten was the... Uh, the middleman between the Ju World Jewish Congress in, in Stockholm and Himmler. And an extraordinary meeting took place, and this is not a legend, it really did, because the representative of the World Jewish Congress himself wrote a wonderful account of it. Uh, and I now can't remember his name, of course, but um, he not Herzog, not Schwab, Never doesn't mind. matter. And so he flew into Berlin uh, with Kersten, um, in the, right in the beginning of 1945, so the war was still going on, Berlin was still getting heavily bombed and so on. They arrived in um, Tempelhof Airport in Berlin, were met by SS officers, who uh, said Heil Hitler, whereupon the uh, representative of the World Jewish Congress doffed his hat and said, Guten Abend, mein Herr, and they went to Kersten's country house outside Berlin where early in the morning Himmler appeared mm. and uttered the immortal words as he um, approached the 
world Jewish Congress man, and said, I think it's perhaps time for our peoples to bury the hatchet. <laughs> and um, and a, a, a kind of deal was made, although Himmler insisted that the Jewish representative leave the room while they made the deal, mm. that some Jews were indeed released from certain camps right at the end of the war. So something did come out of that. But the problem was that after the war, the Swedes, wanting to burnish their reputation, claimed that it had all been the work of Bernadotte and wrote Kersten out of the record, whereupon Kersten wrote his memoir claiming to have been a great resistor, which so and both stories are probably untrue. Have you been to Stockholm to talk about the book um, yet? No, I haven't. Okay, stay, stay no, away still, from I'm the Bernadotte point. They're not going to like it. <laughs> Folke Bernadotte in Swedish mythology is very similar to how the resistance is in Norwegian mythology. It's sort of the savior of the nation. Folke Bernadotte is the true expression yes. of who the Swedes really were in World War II. Well, he wasn't so bad. The, the, no, no, was, he wasn't. There was another figure who was much worse, which uh, was um, the industrialist... Um, Oh, God. Wallenberg. Yes, Wallenberg. Raoul Wallenberg. Uh, who'd made a lot of money out of the Nazis and also tried some quick manoeuvring at the end of the war. And, and he was the, was he the uncle or the cousin of the famous or Raoul Wallenberg? I, I, anyway, they were related. They were related. Yeah. Okay, uh, yes, definitely uh, mixed up the words there, too. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the man before you are, I think. Um, I, I'm mixing up all sorts of things here. But uh, before we, before we uh, move on to some other topics, we, the one we haven't talked so much about yet, Weinreb, uh, the, the Jewish man who sold out his own and profited from it. I mm -hmm. mean, this is one of the hardest stories to di digest in your, in your book. Uh, and he, not only did he sort of put people on, on fake lists uh, for money, but he also sexually assaulted quite a lot of his, uh, of well, his victims. Well, he claimed, among his many false claims, he claimed to have been a medical doctor, and he forged a letter that he, from the University of Vienna saying he was a, a doctor, and he insisted on um, subjecting um, younger women in particular to medical examinations before they were eligible to be put on the trains, these imaginary trains, to safety. Um, but he didn't do this, I don't think, out of malice. Um, he did it really because he thought he was cleverer than everybody else. Mm -hmm. and, and he he was a little bit, I, I compare him in the book, um, a little bit like Bernie Madoff, in that he... The bank... Uh, the, the, bank mm. the investment banker who mm. had this pyramid scheme. And he had a similar technique, which was when, when people asked to be on his list... He said, I'm afraid there, there is no room anymore. And so it became a kind of status symbol to be on his list, in the same way that it was a status symbol to be on Bernie Madoff's list. Mm. And the fact that they refused people made it seem much more plausible. Mm. Um, so it was a strange game he was playing. Some people have claimed that be, having been on his lists um, say, gave them a bit more time and that they were saved as a consequence. So it's, it's a mixed story, um, mm. but uh, that he caused many people to be victims, mm. is, or at least a number of people to be victims, is also pretty sure. So, so the, why did he sort of become 
not a hero, but, but why did this new left of the well, 68 movement rally to his uh, well, I'll uh, tell you, he, cause? The, like in, in uh, probably it's the same story in Norway, I don't know. But in most countries, the Holocaust was not really a, a topic of much discussion until the 1960s. In Norway, not really until the uh, 80s. When, no, when I was at primary school, the only stories you heard were of brave resistors and villainous collaborators, good and bad. And you knew you couldn't buy sweets in a certain tobacconist because the woman there had had a German boyfriend and that kind of thing. So that was the story in the 50s. In the 60s, it began to change. And the first book written about the Holocaust, the history of the Holocaust in the Netherlands, written by a man called Jacques Presser, um, uh, made, came like a sort of bomb. Mm. And it was the first time people really thought about it seriously, what had happened, why 75% of the Jews in Holland never came back, which is the highest percentage of anywhere outside, I think, Lithuania and Poland. No, we're, we're uh, just after you, actually. Yeah, but there it, were, yes, but there were only two, a few thousand in Jews in, only. in, in mm. Norway, whereas mm. there were something like 250,000 in the, in the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, so, and, and one chapter in this book makes the claim that um, uh, Weinreb was a scapegoat and was really a hero and had been unfairly accused after the war to distract attention from the fact that the Dutch elite, the Dutch the bureaucratic establishment, had collaborated with the Germans. And do, then do you it think became... that there is any truth to that? Did he function in that way? Well, I don't think so, but of course he claimed this. And even during his trial just after the war, um, his supporters built him up in the United States and elsewhere, built him up as the Dutch Dreyfus. Mm. So he constantly claimed that he was a Jewish victim of Dutch anti-Semitism. Mm. Now, this happened, this book came out at the same time as the student movement and the provos and the, student, the youth rebellion. Um, which is also true all over Europe. I mean, that the, the German student movement, the Italian student movement, the Japanese student movement, all came about because they felt our parents looked the other way, our parents uh, collaborated, our parents didn't do anything, we have to be in the resistance. Mm. And so they picked on Weinreb as, as a kind of uh, hero, as a, as a model of passive resistance against the establishment. Mm -hmm. And Weinreb, being a good con man, knew perfectly, always knew very well what people wanted to hear. And so he came out with a memoir uh, which he used the language of the youth rebellion, mm -hmm. um, uh, designed to appeal to, to this anti-establishment atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, it became a great national debate, which went on for more than 10 years, which in the end, had nothing to do with Weinreb anymore. It was a left-right debate, really. But, but there is one interesting <coughs> thing, because all of these three, they have very different sort of destinies. Uh, Yoshiko, she is executed. Uh, Weinreb uh, reinvents himself. And Kirsten reinvents himself. Uh, but, and Kirsten was never sentenced. No. Uh, but Weinreb is sentenced to six years in prison, I believe. Yes, of which uh, I think he only served uh, two or three. But. And that is lower. I mean, that punishment was lower 
then was it the commander of the Westerbork concentration camp? Yes, the command. Well, the commander of, of Westerbork, which was the transit camp on the, the Dutch-German border, where <clears throat> all Jews deported from Holland passed through on their way to Auschwitz and, and um, uh, Sobibor mostly, um, were kept. And Gemmerkar was uh, uh, one of these sort of ge gentlemen, gentlemanly, well, gentleman-like SS officers or perfectly dressed and rather handsome. And some of the young women in the camp apparently were sort of in love with him. And he, um, he was always smiling um, and never got his own hands dirty, um, but was responsible for um, deporting up to 100,000 people to their deaths. Mm. But he always claimed after the war that he hadn't known what was going to happen to these Jews once they left Westerbork, which is, of course, the utterly same defense as implausible. Else, yeah. They had no but idea. You could, but because the court felt they couldn't prove that he'd mm. known, he got 10 years, which seems a very mild punishment. And, um, and he lived the rest of his life in Dusseldorf, where he came from, tended to by the same Jewish doctor who was the doctor in Westerbork. <laughs> I mean, um, you're such a, you're so good at finding those details that are so weird well, about everything that you write about. There life, is so much weirdness in this book. Thank goodness, because otherwise we writers wouldn't have good stories. <laughs> That's true. But this is still like very, um, very dubious, as you say, dodgy characters. And the history writing around them has also been really dodgy. Um, let's take uh, Kirsten as an example. Um, and, and you mentioned that also Weinreb wrote a memoir. These people are not Yoshiko since she was executed and already had sort of a mythical right. legacy to leave behind. But the others were very crafty in creating those myths about themselves. Yes. And, and in Kirsten's case, he was uh, sort of whitewashed by a hero of the Dutch resistance. Can you well, tell us no, about not, that? Not by a hero, but he, uh, not by a hero, but Kirsten was very well connected. Mm. I mean, he knew uh, the, the European elite very well because he treated them before the war. Mm. And so the Dutch royal family were very grateful to him because he treated uh, the, the, the husband of Queen Wilhelmina, um, who was the queen during the war. Um, and so they were already quite prepared to believe him mm. and give him medals even. Um, but I think, and this is purely speculation, I have no proof for it at all, but why did he get off so easily? I think it was because after the war, um, in order to rebuild countries, mm. um, including Germany, but countries that had been ravaged by uh, occupation, you needed a, a many members of the old elites, the bureauc bureaucrats, the diplomats, the professors, the uh, people who, the bankers and the so on. Mm. The policemen. Yeah. And, well, the policemen were perhaps less members of the elite, but certainly the bankers and the financiers and, and so on. And so they got off usually much more easily than, let's say, poor, you know, young women who'd had affairs with German officers and that kind of thing. Um, all the revenge was often heaped on people who, whose crimes were not really that severe. Mm. And Kirsten, like, but, like good butlers, and, and, and uh, he was a perfect servant of the, of the elite. Mm. And he always knew what the elite wanted. He, 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 he 
could uh, answer their wishes, he could speak to them and tell them what they wanted to hear and so on. Mm. And as, so almost as a symbol of, the, of reviving the old European elite after the war, he was let off easily. But mm. I don't think he was a war criminal, by the way. I mean, he, he didn't kill anybody. He just made the life of a killer much more comfortable. Mm. I mean, uh, in, in the sense of the law, he hadn't committed any type no. of, of treason or uh, crimes against humanity. But in a moral sense, and I, this, this, is, this is all through the book, that you're very careful to make moral judgments, and you, and you have so many interesting comments about the morality of history at the moment. But um, in, would you say that he is complicit in the crimes that Hitler... On a moral level, in the crimes that Hitler yes. committed, I mean, I think Himmler, sorry. I think again, like like many people in service of the elite, he didn't care very much what those people in the elite did, mm. and so he was uh, perhaps amoral more than immoral. But um, I also think there was more sympathy for the Nazi leaders uh, than he himself let mm. on, and the, 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 he makes a big claim that he always completely refused uh, to do anything political, to have anything to do with any, uh, in any official way uh, with uh, Nazi institutions. He was simply a masser, that, which is not true because there are letters um, written by him to the Finnish authorities, and he had a Finnish passport, asking them whether it would be okay to wear an SS uniform. <laughs> So um, I don't think he was an ideologue, but he was a conformist. Mm. But uh, uh, so after the war, he was sort of uh, the elite decided, OK, you're still good. You have our stamp of approval. But another important thing was the biography that was written about him by Joseph Kessel, yes. the war hero that I was referring to. I mean, he wrote uh, the, the Dutch song of resistance during yes. World War II. He was an icon. Um, and he decided to sort of believe everything this Kirsten said. Oh, you mean the, the, by resistance hero, you mean Kessel? Yeah. Okay, but that's only in France, really. But, okay, uh, but so jo that doesn't Joseph really... Kessel, um, I, I don't know who's, uh, who's read him, he's still a very much beloved author in France, and mm. I'm a great fan, too. Mm. And among other things, he wrote Belle de Jour. And Joseph Kessel was, uh, uh, was a, a French Jew who was in the resistance. He was quite brave and was parachuted into France and fought with the Free French and so on. So not a naive man. And um, he met uh, Kirsten after the war. And as he says in his introduction to his, his, his uh, biography, he says, uh, in the beginning I was inclined to disbelieve this guy, but he was clearly charmed by him. Mm -hmm thought it was a good story, um, was interested in sort of heroes, um, and took, not only took Kirsten at his word, he even dramatized some of mm. Kirsten's very dramatic claims. And in France, this is still in the bookshops, and people still think Kessel's version, Cassell's version of the story is true, and the rights to his book were bought by Uh, Woody Harrelson, who wants to play um, Kirsten as a hero in a forthcoming Hollywood picture. And we, and we have to talk about this, because this is so amazing. Uh, I mean, here is a man that uh, history is uh, 
as such, isn't, hasn't really taken a huge, huge stand on Kirsten Felix. He's, he's not yet by a Hollywood <laughs> production uh, uh, made out to be a hero or a villain. So this, the, the battle no, for that is right now. That's true. And will Woody Harrelson's wish to play a hero, will that sort of trump what I, we know I, about I, I Kirsten Felix? I don't know. And, I, and like a lot of Hollywood <laughs> projects, I'm not even sure it's going to going to uh, ever going to rarely be made. But um, I could see why he was interested in it, because when I was... My first idea for this book was to write a book only about Kirsten. I, mm. I then decided later to add two more. And when I told friends... that I believed the, the Kessel book in the beginning. And when I told friends about the story and this man, this bra brave man who'd saved people by massaging Himmler and so on, they all said, mm. oh, well, that's going to make a great movie. <laughs> and so uh, Woody Harrelson had the, the same idea. You know? But uh, uh, wouldn't it be kind of disgusting to watch a movie where he is presented as a hero? Well, it would be disgusting to me, but, but, yeah. but the general audience probably will think it's a great, a great story. Exactly. And this is a point that you make throughout the book as well, that what we think to be true and, and deem to be facts about World War II is very often myths and legends and, and sort of uh, imagery that we have from movies, um, feelings uh, conveyed yes. about the war. But that's, of course, not new. I mean, the way that the past gets passed on to, 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 uh, in, in history is, is, on the whole, through stories. Mm. And it's not... I mean, the modern, modern history of the... Um, Ranke idea of you know the way it really was is a very modern invention, and stories are the way we remember the past, and and it's still that way. And mm. so, uh, yes, the, the, the movies are the main source of information for most people as, as far as history mm. is concerned. But 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 uh, so that's that's like one thing that that keeps. Uh, shifting, uh, but another thing that keeps shifting in modern history writing is a sort of renewed focus on being critical to your sources, right. which is the other thread in your book, um, that we, we can't really know uh, a lot of the things that we want to know about these three characters, because the sources are untrustworthy, there are many different accounts. Uh, there are issues to when things were written down. <laughs> I mean, they, yes. they both... And, and, and after the war, there was also this production of false diaries and documents. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And then well, Kirsten, we get to the, to the British... Kirsten claimed that all his... his um, that most of his doc wartime diaries and documents had been destroyed at the end of the war, and he recreated them in Stockholm mm. after the war and, and, and did forge documents. But that's, of course, not true of all uh, historical documentation. There is a great deal of documentation, of and there is a great deal that we can know and do know. The problem, of course, is that um, for every historian, let's say, of the Holocaust, like Raoul Hilberg who was very meticulous and, and looked at bureaucratic documents and so on and comes up with an enormous factual history of the Holocaust with railway tables and so on, and, and very, very solid. That's, that certainly had far less impact um, on the public than the, than the Hollywood soap opera uh, Holocaust. Yeah. 
um, which had an enormous impact in Germany. In fact, a positive impact, impact mm. because th the strength of stories is that they invite people to identify with characters. It suddenly mm. becomes human. That's why Anne Frank's diary is so influential. If you say six million people were murdered, that's like a form of math. Mm. It's a figure. Mm. But if you can dramatize actual human beings, people, can, people understand it. Whereas a lot of history is, is much more factual and so on. But it, and it's necessary. Mm. We have to know those facts. But less effective than things that have been made up often. Mm. But, but uh, just after the war, uh, additional opportunists sort of came out to sell documents that were from the Third Reich to people who were interested. I mean, um, you, um, I'm forgetting the name of the British historian you mentioned. Hugh Trevor Roper. Exactly. Hugh Trevor Roper, who was, who was, uh, he was sort of also scouring Europe to, to get accounts from leading Nazis and to, to, get it, to try and understand what it was like in Hitler's inner circle was sort of an obsession already then. Well, Hugh Trevor Roper made his name as a young historian by going to Berlin um, in 1945 already and interviewing all the people who'd been in, in the bunker with Hitler, mm. his doctors and so on. And uh, the last days of Hitler was, was the result, which is still a very good book. Um, he, and he made a name as, as, as somebody who really understood how to read documents and all that. So what happened in, in his case is that somebody had forged um, Hitler's diaries mm. and they brought him in, the Sunday Times um, and Rupert Murdoch um, got uh, um, Lord Dacre, as he was then called, as, or as he was since called, uh, into uh, very quickly um, vet whether these documents were reliable. And out of vanity, perhaps, or whatever the reason may be, he much too quickly concluded that they were okay. Mm. And then just before it was going to go to press, the Hitler diaries um, uh, in the Sunday Times, he, caught, uh, he had second thoughts. Mm. And he said, well, no, perhaps uh, actually it's not quite right. And Rupert Murdoch was told about this. And um, excuse my language, but his... Um, response was, fuck Dacre, and they published it. And um, Hugh Trevor Roper, or Lord Dacre's uh, reputation, never recovered, even though he was a great historian. We're already running out of time. This is horrendous. But before we let you go, I think I would be, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people in the audience have read many of your other books about all of the issues that you are an expert at, at the same time. And I think that we, I would be really amiss if I didn't ask you to just say something about the current situation. Um, where we can't just sit and talk about the war when there is another war happening in Europe right now. Any thoughts you would like to share with us well, I'm, I'm not, on the Ukrainian no, the, situation? I, I, I've always prided myself on not being an expert on anything. So... Uh, I mean, and, that, and I mean that not just in a self-denigrating way, but if you're not an expert, you, you, you always have to do your best to know more about things. Mm. Um, so I'm not really an expert. Um, on the Ukraine, I, I, I've never been there. I'm, I, 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 I have no special insights. And I, I, as a journalist, 
I don't feel I don't really feel I really should go to countries where I don't have anything special to special knowledge to give give people fresh insights. But one thing I can say, which did impress me, um, that from what I read, there are certain parallels w with subjects such as this one mm. that I wrote a book about. And an article that impressed me very much uh, was uh, appeared in the New Yorker magazine by somebody called uh, Josh Yaffe, and it was about collaboration. Mm. And what he was describing is a, a small town um, that had been Ukra that was Ukrainian, and that was invaded and taken over by the Russian army, um, and everything collapsed. Of course, all social services and so on, and so certain Ukrainians had to collaborate with the Russians simply to keep people fed, make sure they could see a doctor if they were in bad shape and, and, and so on. They, they had no choice. And then when the same town was retaken by the Ukrainian army and the Russian army was chased away, these people were uh, arrested as collaborators. And that shows you how often how many gray areas there are here. And that it, that's why I say that, you know, I think one shouldn't be too quick with moral condemnation if you don't really know the situation people are in. So there are clearly collaborators who are cynical and who do it because they can make money or they want power and so on. There are others who are naive and deluded. There are people who are ideologically fanatical, but there are also people who are in that sort of gray zone where whether, whether to collaborate or not to collaborate is not such an easy question. Mm. I think that's a perfect ending, actually, to this hour that we got to spend with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.